Hi, my name is Tom Alston. I'm the founder and CEO of Aeromarine Tax Professionals. Here on the Winning Pitch Broadcast, I'm going to tell you how it is. I'll be sharing the ins and outs of business management, improving your sales skills, building personal and professional wealth, and balancing it all with your personal and family life, excluding the part about balancing it with your personal life. Don't expect a filter because we're about to rustle some feathers. Have fun. Welcome to this edition of the Winning Pitch Broadcast. My uh, guest today is Vicki Benzing, who's had an amazing life. She flies airplanes, she competes in airplanes. She's also a very successful business person. And uh, we're going to roll into this at the gradient that uh, this works for our for our audience. So, Vicki, tell me about who you are today. Uh, well, I'm an aerobatic pilot and I'm an air race pilot. I'm a skydiver. I pretty much like everything that has to do with aviation and being up in the air. Um, okay. I wasn't always this person. I started out uh, studying chemistry and got my PhD in chemistry and worked in the semiconductor industry for many, many years. But um, I realized that my real passion lay in aviation. Are you still creation and science? And uh, are, you, are you still involved in the business, or or do you only do? Are you only focused on your aviation passion at this time? No, I'm no longer involved in the business. I mean, I follow the technology because I think it's fascinating. But uh, I'm no longer. I retired from the business in 2012. Uh, All right, so, so let's go back and talk from the business. Why were you successful in your business ventures? I would say that it's not because I'm special. It's because I worked really, really hard. Got um, it. Completely. And I think, think, uh, I think that anyone can make up for, for whatever it is they lack. And I always like to say, God only gives you so many gifts. And if you get endowed in certain areas, you might be deprived in other areas. But um, but you can certainly make up for anything by working hard. And um, and I worked hard. I worked hard since I was a kid in school. Um, so let's go back to the point where you're a kid in school. What taught you, or what got you to accept the discipline of working hard? Um, I don't know. I was always one of those people who wanted to achieve the next goal. Okay. And maybe uh, it was just. I just wanted to be better and better. Um, and I'm a very goal oriented person. So, so, um, you know, I grades on my report card were the goal when I was in school and then later, you know, college and graduate school. And I did a postdoctoral, <laughs> I did postdoctoral research. Uh, well, it's some place you had to go to work. So when yeah, did that occur? I, I thought I was going to be a professor, but, um, I ended up doing, I, I went to Davis for undergraduate and I went to Cal for graduate school. So I'm a born and bred California girl. Okay. And, um, and I went up to Oregon for a postdoc. I worked for a woman who had been uh, a graduate student at Berkeley and she uh, was teaching at Bryn Mawr. And she moved to the University of Oregon. She hired three postdocs. She had a million dollars in grant money. And we, uh, the three of us went up there and we set up her lab 
And we did uh, experiments on uh, laser surface interaction. And while I was in Oregon, I just, I fell in love with Oregon. And uh, <laughs> I didn't really want to leave to be, if you're, if you're on the tenure track to be a professor, you could end up anywhere in the United States. And I, I didn't really want to leave Oregon. And one of my buddies up at Tektronics in Portland called me up and said, hey, we have an opening at uh, Tektronics, come apply. So I did. And I got so what, were you, what, was the, what was your first job at Tektronics? I uh, worked on uh, the laser trimming of thin film semiconductor, uh, thin film resistors. They were so I heard all the words you resistors. said, but it was like speaking What's that? Greek. So explain it to an old duffer like me. In terms <laughs> of that so on an integrated circuit or a chip, like a chip that would be in your phone, okay. um, there, uh, there are resistors. And in this case, these were analog devices. So they had to be able to change the resistance value of the resistor. And to do that, um, the resistors were square. And to do that, the laser cut a line in the resistor. And so the current path would have to go around that line. So to create, it, it, it increased the resistance. Okay, got it. So um, we would actively test the circuit while the laser started cutting into the and nichrome resistor until okay. until the circuit was perfect and then it went it got chipped so my job because i worked in optics and lasers and that kind of stuff was to design the thin film stack of dielectrics that went over the, the resistor and ensure that the laser trim process worked correctly and, right. and I did that. I did that for a while, and then I got to move upstairs into the wafer fabrication facility, where with, they make with Tektronix, right? Yes. Okay. So Tektronix had its own in-house wafer fabrication facility, and um, so we made the chips that went into the oscilloscopes and all the tests and measurement equipment that uh, Tektronix built. Okay. And so I learned. I learned most aspects of building an integrated circuit and there's hundreds of process steps to build a circuit. Okay. And I learned a lot about all the process steps and later they sold our division at Tektronics and I left uh, when they announced the sale and went over the cross the river to Camas, Washington and worked at Sharp Microelectronics in their research lab. Okay. <laughs> Now, this is where serendipity comes into play. <laughs> so tell us about the serendipity. We always like to hear the, about it. The person that I worked for at Tektronics, the general manager there, he became he left when they sold the division, and he went to a company called Novella Systems in San Jose. Okay. And um, I worked for him, and I was one of his, you know, what they call hypo, high potential engineers. And I had left to go, go over to Sharp. And he pestered me to join Novellus. So I was at Sharp for only a year before I was spirited away to, to Novellus Systems. And um, So you went from Tektronix to Novella and then you the, went to Sharp. And to the, Sharp both, those, both, those, both those situations were in Oregon? Um, so Tektronix was in Portland and Sharp was across the river in Washington. Okay. So and where did you go? When you went to the other company? To Novellus. Well, because I didn't want to leave Oregon, my first job at Novellus was to support Intel in Oregon. Okay. And Intel has all of their research and development 
labs up in the Portland area. Okay. And um, so, so I went to support Novellus Equipment, which I had worked on at when I, while I was at Sharp. I went to work on that equipment at Intel, supporting Novellus. Okay. So I was embedded within the Intel infrastructure, but I worked for a different company. And in fact, I didn't even get down to Novellus till I was, had worked there for like nine months. Really? <laughs> it was almost so like there, Intel. There was a point that you left Oregon and went to San Jose. No, no, no. I worked, in a, I worked for uh, another year there. And then, uh, of course, I got this call, um, come to San Jose. We have a bigger job for you. Okay. And, um, and so I, uh, I moved down to San Jose and I took a job as a director of technology for one of the products. Okay. And um, product? it was a tungsten deposition. So we okay. deposited tungsten films on these, uh, these silicon wafers. Okay. And then the Friday before I was supposed to start, the general manager of the division left and went to apply materials. <laughs> And so now, is that the same general manager who encouraged you to join? No, 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 different one. So the, the general manager in Tektronix became the CEO at Novellus. Okay. And so uh, so I had the group for a while before they hired another general manager. So I went from just an engineer to leading the whole group. And it was the first time I'd, you know, I'd been to Canada and Mexico, but the first time I'd been, I had to go out of the country. I the first trip I took, I went to Korea to sell our equipment to Samsung. And then I continued on around the world <laughs> to visit customers in Europe and IBM on the East Coast. And yeah, that was the first trip I had ever been out of the country. And in the so beginning of many, many trips. <laughs> that was a sales trip, right? Sales trips, yeah. So, so because the why did you feel confident enough to do sales? Um, well... So because the technology is pretty intense, you can't okay. have salespeople who aren't technical people. Okay. You have to be, you have to be a technical person. All right. And um, to be able to explain how your equipment works and what it can do and, um, and to sell your equipment. And we're talking, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment. It's these, these pieces of equipment are, one to six million dollars a piece. <laughs> <Right>. So, <laughs> so, um, so, anyways, um, and then after that, um, I became the product general manager, the okay. general manager for the product, and then I got moved to be in charge of the Intel account, and we uh, we sold into Intel. We had we're only selling one product into Intel, and during the time I ran the the, the account, we sold two more products into Intel. And it was just at the time that they were transitioning from aluminum wiring on the chips okay. to, to copper wiring on the chips. So we sold okay. in copper electric plating equipment. We sold in dielectric deposition equipment. And uh, I can remember the first $100 million order coming off the fax machine. It was, I was staggered. <laughs> were you excited or not? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Very excited. So you went to the boss and said, look what I did, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and, what did, and what did the boss say? Uh, for that, I got promoted to be a vice president. Awesome. <laughs> and, uh, I was vice president of technology. Um, and I did I did that for a while. Um, 
And then uh, the boss liked to move you around quite a bit. Do you know why? Uh, because I don't know why. That, that was his. That was what he did with us. So, did uh, you like that lifestyle? It was pretty tiring, to be honest, because um, because everything I got moved into had to be fixed. <laughs> <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah. Are you good at fixing things? I, I guess I am. I mean, I have a couple personal beliefs about managing. Um, one of them is that I hire the absolutely best people I can hire. Um, if I can hire people that are better than me, that is terrific. <laughs> I definitely strive to hire the very best and, and I'll promote them and, um, you know, give them credit where credit's due. And, and I try to inspire my employees to go beyond what they think they can do. Um, what gave you the confidence to be able to make those kinds of decisions? What gave me the confidence? Yeah. Um, you know, every, in every decision I would make in the company, I would think about myself standing in front of the CEO and justifying it. <laughs> so, so it was pretty easy. Uh, if it was the right thing to do for the company and I could justify it, then that's what I did. Um, yeah. And so uh, in, in, for example, the Intel organization, you know, not only did we sell into Intel, but we also shipped all that equipment all over the world, including, you know, all the way out to Israel. And I had to, we had to create field offices all over the world and staff all those field offices and train all those employees and uh, to service the equipment. So it became a, a huge, huge job. Uh, I would travel and visit each of my teams at each of the Intel fabs. And there are a lot of them <laughs> around the world um, regularly just to make sure that they knew they were part of the mothership, um, that they weren't out there on an outpost on their own. And um, so, so I think. Were you, always, were you always this confident high level producer from the time you were in high school? I, I would say that I strove to be. <laughs> okay. I strove to be, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think everybody gets knocked down sometimes in their life. Um, okay. You know, when I was in, uh, as an undergraduate in chemistry, I was one of, there were only eight chem grads, but I was one of the top, top people there. And I thought it wasn't, you know, particularly hard. And then I went to grad school in Berkeley and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> everybody's smart here. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, all, all the professors, I mean, there's lots of Nobel laureates and, um, and I found myself just being average. And so, uh, so I think that was, uh, that was a very humbling experience. But then again, when I got out of Berkeley and went to the University of Oregon, People said, oh, you were a Berkeley grad in chem. Because um, Berkeley is one of the best chemistry schools in the U.S. And, and so that opened a lot of doors for me. Excellent. And I was able to, to build that lab up from scratch and start the research from scratch and publish a bunch of papers. And that, was, that gave me a lot of self-confidence that I didn't otherwise have. And I guess I would have to say also that during my graduate school years, I learned to fly and I learned to jump out of airplanes. And both of those things gave me confidence, gave me much more confidence. The fact that 
You know, I could jump out of an airplane and save my own life, or I could be up in the sky by myself uh, and go from point A to point B and land the airplane and all that. Those, those, those give a young person a lot of confidence. So, okay. So can you, if you went back to the time that let's say that you were in the second or third grade, did you have that same level of confidence or, or did you just have it as a goal? How did it work out for you? Well, um, I, th- I would say maybe not so much. Um, I, uh, I was really a tomboy, so I wasn't, I, I, I spent more time playing baseball with the boys and not so much time with the girls. And so <laughs> that kind of made me not part of the group. Got <laughs> and, it. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think, I, I think those, I think everybody has a hard time in grade school and high school fitting in, but um, I got into a program that they had in California where uh, they call it an MGM program. It was mentally gifted minors. MGM. Okay. Yeah. It's um, mentally gifted minors. And um, they separated a group of us. Maybe, uh, I don't know, there's 15 of us or something uh, in my high school class of 800. <laughs> and we all went through the same classes together. Okay. We had AP history. I had two years of chemistry in high school. Uh, so, so in a lot of ways, we were sequestered nerds that were away from the rest <laughs> of the school population. But I always, I always felt like... Um, I don't know, you know, like I wasn't one of the cool kids. <laughs> not not until I got to college and and started coming out of my shell more. So, so what caused you coming out of the shell more? I think you went from being a sequestered nerd, using your <laughs> language. What, yeah. what caused that transition to where now all of a sudden you're thinking about flying airplanes and jumping out of airplanes and developing developing more confidence? Because it seems to me the way that you describe it that those all kind of occurred in the same period of your life. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there was any, any one thing or turning point, but it was certainly the freedom of getting to go to college and being on your own and, and exploring so many different things that the college has to offer. I, uh, I worked in the Vinton viticulture and knowledge department. Um, I was their local chemist doctoring the wines for wine tasting groups. Um, I was uh, I was a disc jockey at the at the KDBS, the little campus radio station. Um, I played intramural softball, floor hockey. Um, I just I explored and kind of came out of my shell. So I think that was just maybe a natural progression of growing up. Plus, between high school and college, I grew like three or four inches. <laughs> so not only in the ter- esoteric sense of growing up, you grew up. <laughs> yeah. You got taller. Yeah. I, later, uh, when I was at Novellus, one of, the, one of my high school girlfriend's brothers came to work for me. Okay. And he, he, he looked at me. He was like, <laughs> what happened to you? You're like. You're much taller than I remember you. I was, How uh, tall are you? I'm 5'7". I, I think I was probably 5'3 in high school. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> I grew it a lot of different ways. 
Perfect, perfect. So I'm going to ask you a couple of uh, off-the-wall questions, and these are questions that I typically ask people during interviews. So this is where this is my foundation. So taking into account all of your work history and all the very first things you've done from being a chemist to being a disc jockey to being involved in, in sports, tell me about your single best moment and be very descriptive. Put the listeners there with you. So I need to know what you were doing specifically, what, you know, when it was located in date and time. Well, my single best moment possibly was followed by my single worst moment. Well, because I'm going to ask you about that too. If you want to go from the best to the worst or the worst to the best, you can, you can do it. So, in so of course, I learned to fly in graduate school and I fell in love with flying and it was just, yeah, it's just a passion inside of me. And, um, and because I love science and math, I always dreamed of being an astronaut. And um, my dad worked on the Titan missile rockets. He worked at United Technology Center, UGC down in Coyote near Morgan Hill. Okay. Did the, they did all the missile testing and stuff like that there. We watched the Apollo program. I, I was in front of the TV when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, and it was just a huge dream of mine to become an astronaut. But I, I didn't really think that I had the qualifications to be an astronaut. And, um, and so it turned out that one of my friends, one of my colleagues in graduate school, who was a couple, three years behind me. Um, she also became a pilot and also was skydiving with us. She applied to NASA and became an astronaut. And she went up on this uh, up on the shuttle. And I went to her launch and I thought, well, heck, <laughs> if Mary Ellen could do it, I could do it. So, um, which is so much the case for for everyone, but especially for women, we need role models, right? We need an example to show us that we can do it. Um, and so, so um, while I was at Novellus, when I first, right after I first joined Novellus, I got sent to uh, Albuquerque to do a startup, and I ended up being in Albuquerque for like a month. And I, <laughs> I didn't even know I was going. I had gone to a conference in San Diego and packed for that. And then I got shipped from San Diego to Albuquerque. And I, so I had to go buy clothes even to, to do this job. And I knew the deadline for applying to be an astronaut was coming up. And okay. um, we, I finally finished up the job and was able to come home. And I worked really hard to complete that application and get it in to NASA. And it's a, it's a big, long application and requires um, letters of reference and all that stuff. It's kind of one of those life story applications. It's not just an application. Got it. Um, and, and then I waited. And I remember uh, in early October, one day in early October that year, I get this letter in the mail from NASA. And, you know, it's one of those things where you just kind of hold up the envelope. It's like, well, should I open it? <laughs> Like all your hopes and dreams are like contained in this envelope. And, and, um, and so, so I opened it and it was a letter inviting me down to NASA to interview, to be an astronaut. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I still have that letter. 
<laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> yeah. And that was uh, that was pretty much one of the most exciting days of my life was to to get that call. Uh, we get it. We get it completely. So, but you earlier in this discussion, you said it came right after one of your worst days. So go no, back. It to came stuff. before one of my worst days. So, oh, so, so I will tell, tell you. Me about your, tell me about your worst day. So let me tell you uh, about the interview process. Uh, okay. So I get to go down to NASA and um, down to Houston, and and it starts out with, and and the way it works is they bring in at least when I interviewed, which was in 95, they bring, they brought in, they brought in 120 people that year in groups of 20. So they take all the applicants, you know, all the thousands of applicants and they rank order them and they bring in the first 20 then they bring in the next 20 then they bring in the next 20. So I was in the first group of 20. Okay. And I was one of three women. Okay. In the group. And uh, one of five PhDs, the rest of them, and I had more flight time than anybody in the group. Okay. Because, because I fly small airplanes and, and uh, yeah, and the, the, uh, the military pilots, they, they just don't get that much flight time. Okay. So, uh, so the first day they bring you in, they do all this testing, all the, they take your blood and then they do all this IQ testing and testing of you know, who you might be like and stuff. And, and then uh, throughout the process, they do all kinds of physical tests, treadmill tests. Um, they do some unusual tests where they put you into um, a personal rescue sphere and you, you're in a fetal position to fit in there. They've got you monitored with heart monitors and make sure you're not claustrophobic, right? I fell asleep. <laughs> Definitely not claustrophobic. <laughs> <laughs> I would have never guessed that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they, uh, they fit you. They measure all your joint angles and strengths to make sure that you can be in a space suit and, and, mm-hmm. and work the space suit in space and, and that you'd fit in the, uh, the, the seat of the Soyuz because they were planning Russia, missions with Russia to the space station and you have to be able to, returned by the Soyuz and um, and they do a, a four-hour interview with the uh, current and former high-ranking NASA officials and astronauts okay you tell your life story and then Thursday night they have uh, they have this sort of little cocktail party at local beer joint and and um, we're there they just want to see how you mingle and socialize because mm-hmm. you know, they don't want to spend six months on the space station with you and figure out they can't stand you right so they want to know that somebody they can spend a bunch of time with and, and um i had just prior to to doing that interview i had learned to fly helicopters and i got my helicopter rating and and um the week before i left for nasa i borrowed a friend's bonanza and it was the day that i got my helicopter rating i borrowed my friend's bonanza to go pick up a part at portland international airport and i had an engine fire on takeoff and I landed the, the plane on fire, <laughs> five fire trucks and two emergency vehicles, and it shut down Portland International Airport and made the local news. And, and so that was one of the stories I told during my interview process. So that night at the bar, when we we're all standing around with all the, you know, the potential astronaut candidates, um, the, one of the guys from the board says, you know, all you big military pilots, 
and all your stories. And she has the best, the best story pointing to me. Right. Yeah. I figured that I had a pretty good chance of getting in because, you know, I was pretty unusual, unique among the pool. And, but it turned out I have a vision defect and I couldn't pass one of the vision tests. And so Friday of that week, I found out that I don't see like everybody else sees that I actually have a vision defect and I have made up for it through my whole life. Not Were you aware of it or was it just so normal to you that you moved it, it was out? so normal to me that I did not know I had it. It's uh, I, I don't have the same depth perception that everybody has. <laughs> I, I couldn't pass their depth perception test. Um, wow. And, you know, I played softball. I, uh, I played league softball. I played, tournament softball on weekends. Um, I played infield. I played outfield. (laughs) Uh, I had no idea I had this defect, but it turns out you can make up for this defect by the way you move your head, by light and dark, the size of an object, how the object moves in space. They're all other visual cues to to where something is in space. And, um, And so I was scrubbed from the pool of of being an astronaut, and uh, I was pretty devastated to, to find I can, out. I can, can completely understand that, because from your point of view, you overcame <laughs> the problem, right? Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I was crushed. <laughs> because, because being down there felt like this was the perfect workplace and the perfect job for me. <laughs> so it turned out that they hired seven people out of my group of 20, seven of them. Oh went on to be astronauts and you never know why things happen in your life, but it turned out that three of those seven were on the Columbia when it burned up. Ouch. So it could well have been that I was one of those. Damn. So I was getting ready to ask <laughs> you. were in my pool. I knew them. We kept in touch. <laughs> in I fact, one of them to- came out to visit me while I lived in Portland. <laughs> I was getting ready to ask you what what good came out of that, but I think you've already answered that. Yeah. So um, you're still alive. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it was a great experience. I got to watch a shuttle launch from inside a mission control, uh, sitting next to John. How many people can say that? Yeah, sitting. Yeah, sitting next to John Young, man who drove the the uh, the vehicle on the moon. And um, yeah, and in fact, he asked me, he talked to me about the, one of the stories I told about density altitude the, after the interview, he talked to me quite a bit. And I met, I met a number of really amazing people there. Um, so it was a great experience overall, but, but uh, you know, it went from the pinnacle to the, <laughs> to the worst okay. possible. <laughs> I understand completely. So, so uh, if you had a, a, a message to deliver to your, the day that you graduated from high school, looking back, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to, to believe in myself because I think, um, I think that is the most important, most important thing for us as humans, um, for, for our own self-satisfaction, self-love. To be, to be able to achieve and do things that we want to do, it, it's so important to believe in yourself. And for me, it seemed like it came 
over time as I as I set goals for myself and achieve goals, as I learn to fly, that sort of stuff. But I would say that uh, had I believed in myself even more earlier, I could have done even more. Um, and so I think for young people, um, the most important thing is to believe in yourself. Got it. And go out and try it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, when I came back from NASA, I used to, I had a group of friends that I'd go flying with on Saturday mornings. Every Saturday morning, we meet in the hangar and we go fly out to breakfast someplace. Rain or shine. If it was raining, we'd drive to the local place to have breakfast. But uh, so I show up in the hangar after my interview and, and all my buddies are, have their backs turned to me. And I'm like, what's going on? They all turn around at the same time and they're wearing those, those 3D glasses, you know, the one with the red and the green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They love you. <laughs> they love me. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, so <laughs> if, if you had a message to deliver to every inhabitant of planet Earth, what would it be? Every inhabitant? <laughs> yeah, we're talking to the whole world. This, this podcast is going to wind up around the planet. Holy cow. <laughs> Well, I guess I'd have to say enjoy your life because because we only get one of those, and um, I think that's a it's a good thing to keep in mind every day. Um, make sure you're doing the things that you love to do, um, and if you if you're not loving what you're doing, then you better figure out how to change it. Because um, either change it to the point that you love it, or do something else. Or is that's that right. Mean? Yeah, and and a lot of it's your attitude, right? I mean, uh, too. But then, but I agree. There's some things that we we just don't love so um. got it <laughs> so i want to take a few minutes just between you and i because we're friends you are one of the most amazing people that i've ever known and i want you to know that and i want to acknowledge that to the whole world because when i listen to your story and i've heard parts of this before I had no idea that you were almost an ass, almost an astronaut. That's an AA. You know, that's like yeah. it's just not good unless it's you know hand grenades and hand grenades and horseshoes. <laughs> it's a great story. It's, it's extremely motivational. I'm sure that the listeners to this podcast are going to be glad that they took the time to spend with you. Is there anything else that you'd like to communicate, whether it's to the whole world or just to the aviation audience or? or to little girls who are somewhat interested in chemistry and a little bit afraid of flying, what would you tell them? Well, actually, um, I'd like to talk about a little bit for a moment about role models, because I I think role models are so important. And I think that each of us doesn't really realize the influence we have on, on each other and other, you know, others. Um, I know that uh, in my life, I, when I was going to graduate school, I didn't feel like I could have a career and a family. Right. At the same time, I had a career and I didn't end up having a family. But then um, then we see now we see many examples of women who are in very high power positions having both careers and families. Okay. And I think, uh, you know, for me, that's like, wow, I wish somebody was like that when I was younger, I would have you know, I would have maybe might have changed my life. Got it. Um, as an airshow professional, I get to meet with lots of kids. I 
I always take the time to try to talk to them. I ask them what they want to be when they grow up, you know, just get their little minds thinking about, you know, what, what it is they might want to be and stuff. And um, I've gotten letters back from young women saying, hey, you know, I met you in an air show. You probably don't remember me, but you signed an autograph for me. And, and, and look, now I'm in college and I'm studying aviation and I'm becoming a pilot. And, and um, I think... And something that maybe was so insignificant to me, not that it wasn't significant, but but meet hundreds of, of kids had a big impact on somebody else. And and I always try to remind remind these young women that they're also role models for the people who are younger than them or people who are around them. And um, I think I think it's so important how we behave with other people. And um, to, to always try to be encouraging and, and gosh, friendly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so friendly is a good key, yeah. yeah. There's, no reason, there's no reason to be miserable and have a crappy attitude. It's, it's your yeah. so, so somebody once asked me what I want people to remember about me. And I said, just remember that I was a nice person. <laughs> you know, not that I was like the best flyer or you know, the, uh, a good chemist or successful in business or whatever, but just remember that I'm a nice person. That's what I want to be remembered for. And, um, and so I think, uh, I think it really is important for us all to have role models and it's important for us to remember that we are role models for each other. And uh, I guess that's what I want to say. <laughs> so who are some of your role models now? Oh, goodness. <laughs> now, um, well, um, I'll just say that I've, I've learned so much from so many, so many people um, in, in business, you know, some of the vice presidents in our corporation who were gruff and mean and, and intimidating. I still learned a ton from uh, I had this, I had this boss who would, he would refuse to see me. So I'd wait outside his office for hours after the end until his last meeting ended and he had to see me. <laughs> and I learned so much from him, um, grudgingly maybe, but, but in the end we, we, we respected each other and, and became mutual friends and, um, and, uh, and then in the flying world, so many people have helped me. Uh, Wayne Hanley taught me to fly aerobatics. Uh, he's one of the people I most admire for for just being a person and uh, who he is and, and his flying abilities. Um, Bill Stein helped teach me to fly the, the Stearman. Uh, Patty Wagstaff is certainly a role model for all of women in aviation. Uh, she's just amazing. And she continues to help women come up through the ranks in aviation, um, supporting women. And it's funny, not all women support women. <laughs> women are very competitive. You, don't have, to, you don't have to explain it. <laughs> I completely get it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Patty's not that way. Uh, she really supports the women. And um, oh, gosh, I'm sure there are more that I could uh, list off if, it's sort of hard to do this extemporaneously. <laughs> but, um, no problem. I admire my husband. He's a very smart guy. 
and he really digs in to stuff and details. And we uh, we're in the middle of beginning a remodel, and we've been working on the plans for it for the last nine months. And and the contractors whose business this is supposed to be rely on him to do the plan checking. <laughs> <laughs> he's like well this window isn't right you know or this isn't right and <laughs> which of the companies where did you meet your husband i i met him at novellus um so when i came to work at novellus for rick hill who was a ceo who was previously the general manager at tektronics uh jeff was at at novellus he ran um he ran engineering at novellus and in fact uh when i ran the tungsten group i had I had engineers that worked for me, mechanical engineers that worked for me, and they would have to do design reviews with my husband because Jeff ran all of engineering. And so they sort of dotted line into his organization. And so is your <laughs> husband into flying? Um, yes, he is now. He is. But I'll tell you that story in just a moment. So uh, so anyways, uh, they would be terrified to go meet with him because because he really knew his stuff and he would call them on the carpet if they hadn't thought through some dimension or some material property or Got it. they did their homework <laughs> before they went to meet with them. So, um, so Jeff always said that I don't need to fly, learn to fly because I have a perfectly good pilot, meaning me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it, I, you may know I have a small fleet of airplanes <laughs> I absolutely yeah. do know that. And they uh, they need to be serviced and stuff. They need to be ferry places. And so be handy to have a second pilot in the family. And uh, when Jeff went to retire from Novellus, and he was an executive vice president in the company, he uh, the boss the boss's secretary called me up and said, oh, we're thinking of giving him a gold watch for, uh, for his retirement gift. And I'm like, don't give him a gold watch. <laughs> give him flying lessons. <laughs> you know, like I said, you are amazing. Don't give him something he can have in his drawer or wear on his wrist. Give him something he could do. So, um, so in front of about 250 people, he got a gift certificate to learn to fly. And um, and of course, me being me, I wouldn't have him learn in like a Cessna 150. He had to learn in a, in a tail dragger. <laughs> and and when you're just learning, you don't know the difference that it's much harder. I mean, it's just seems like that's how hard it is to learn. And so, um, so every time he'd go back into the office, cause he was on a wind down program from his job. Um, every time he'd go back in the office, they would say, Oh, so how are those flying lessons going? <laughs> so of course he had to take the flying lessons. And, um, and so he learned to fly about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And he okay. has, he has over a thousand hours now. Um, mainly from chasing me around to air shows, uh, he has uh, he has two of his own planes, and uh, he has a Cirrus that he flies around, and he is supremely competent at flying that airplane and flying it in the soup down to minimums uh, because he's just kind of that kind of tech kind of guy, and okay. and then he has a, a Cub. Uh, a carbon cub that he flies in the backcountry. He's a big off-road dirt bike guy, and so so that just appeals to him to be, have the big tires and land in cow pastures and, and <laughs> trips and stuff like that. So, and he's he's gotten quite good with that. 
we go out flying. Uh, so, so of course, nobody wants to ride them back. So we had to buy a second one. <laughs> so we have two of those, and um, and there's a and he took another guy in the airport for a ride, and so he bought one. So there's three of us. We go out and we we go out on weekends and we'll play in the cow pastures and fly up the rivers and chase coyotes and do all the things we're probably not supposed to do, but we do. And <laughs> you do it anyway. Rather ask for forgiveness than permission, right? <laughs> That's right. And um, yeah, and have some fun with it. So, so I, I think I think I've been very very lucky in my life uh, to be in the right place at the right time to be successful. I joined this industry, uh, the semiconductor equipment industry, right as it was exploding. Um, so I I joined Novellus in '96, I believe. You know, we had a big explosion in 2000, right? The, and um, uh, and it's just steadily grown, grown because because the need for semiconductor is ever increasing. You know, every new phone you get has more chips in it. Every computer, every car, every toy. I mean, everything in our lives has computer has uh, silicon in it. And so uh, so it's it will continue to be a growing industry and. And we still hold stock in the company that, that we left, we retired from. And it's been amazing. <laughs> it's, it's been amazing. So the reason I'm pausing is because you froze for a second. Oh, okay. All right. So anyway, uh, our time for this podcast has come to an end. Is there anything that you're thinking back that you'd want to cover that you want to tell everybody in the world about? Um. Boy, I don't know. I think uh, we've talked about so many things. Um, yeah, I think we've done a pretty good job of covering yeah, it. Uh, but I, I'm I, willing, I have, I have I, something I, oh. I want to say. You may have, this is to the audience, you may have thought that I was being a little bit weird when I told her this lady is the most amazing person I've ever met. But now you know why I believe that way. <laughs> I've never met somebody with has as much confidence as you do and has the spirit that you do. And I love it. I love the fact that you grew up as a tomboy because you know, my wife, Julie, and she's the same way. Her, she always uh, had souped up cars and always raced the boys. And so there's, there, there's a lot of similarity. So, you know, that, uh, you know why I love Julie. It's the same reason that I love you. It's just that you're absolutely, you have this huge, constantly expanding adventurous spirit that uh, we all should have. It, it, you know, I, if I could go back and tell myself at five years old, that's what I'd say. Just do it. Try it. You know, what's right. the worst thing that can happen? Right. You know, you're just going to learn something. Yep. Yep. A failure. Yep. I think just keep trying new things. And, um, you know, life is a grand adventure. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and gosh, I went from being a vice president in a billion and a half dollar corporation to being an air show pilot. You can always reinvent yourself. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I feel like I cut you off a little bit when you started to talk about what I wanted. I don't even remember what I was going to talk about. <laughs> but well, um, we'll do the, when you do remember it, we'll do this again sometime. Okay. How's that? Sound? Sure. I'm sure there's more stories to be told. <laughs> I'm knowing you in another couple of weeks and we're going to, I'm going to hear about your, uh, your remodel and it's probably be a great story. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so 
as always, I enjoy every minute I get to spend with you. I, I learn new things about you every day, and, and, and it just makes my love for you to grow because you're such an amazing person. Thank and you I gotta, very much, <laughs> I got to keep saying that. So um, this is the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. My friend's name is Vicki Benzing, and you can look her up on social media, and you can look her up on Google because she's famous. And uh, we'll do this again sometime if you request it. So anyway, <laughs> thanks, Vicki. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? I'm invested in your business and personal success, and I hope you found this episode of the podcast insightful. If you or your business is ready to grow, check out my website, 10 Excellence. This is the way that you do that. The number 10, then xlenz.com. Be sure to follow me and send questions on Facebook at Arrow and Marine Tax Professionals and on Twitter and YouTube at Thomas Alston. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on our next episode.